As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made In Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made In. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made In Cookware. Shop chef-quality pots and pans at madeincookware.com. Hello and welcome to Hysteria. I'm Erin Ryan. And I'm Alyssa Bastrobonico. Alyssa, I I detect that you are under the weather today. Erin, I have a cold. Oh. I'm trying though. Oh, you, you really are trying and you're putting the cold in cold open today. <laughs> but I'm up. <laughs> This week, we're joined by Oriaku Njaku, Michaela Watkins, and Shaniqua McClendon to tackle the following questions. Why does all the good news happen at once? What's it like to be on the ground promoting reproductive justice in the American South? What does it mean to be a sister? And who needs anesthesia? All this and more right now. Alyssa, I have noticed something about good news and bad news. And the way that it sort of seems to come, I, I feel like the bad news is drawn out like being at a, a prefix meal at like a really overhyped restaurant where you're like not having a good time or things are, you know, so it's like, when is the next course going to come? I just want to, I just want to leave. Believe like me, sucks. I get it. It's like the countdown to when is the IBS going to kick in? <laughs> exactly. It's like you were looking forward to something and then you and the person you're going to have dinner with got into a fight right before and you're just like, oh, I just want to go home. Yeah. <laughs> and I have, to, I have to wait for the fish course. Um, but that's like how bad news is served. It's like rubbery, like rubbery octopus at per se and you just want to leave. Uh, but good news to me seems like it comes really fast. Like you go to in and out and you just like unhinge your jaw and like eat it all and then 10 and minutes over. later- yeah, 10 minutes later, you're done, but you got so much during that 10 minutes um, and you need to lie down. Totally. But I feel like yesterday was one of those like Culver's ice cream, unhinged jaw days. It was like you went in and out and then you hit Culver's on the way home. <laughs> oh my God. Where is this magical town where Culver's and in and out coexist? Because it could be wonderful. I, I want to move there. I saw Culver's in Utah and I was like, holy shit. Culver's um, is so good. It's so good. It's so good. in and out also good. Culver's mm-hmm. has things that in and out just doesn't. Anyway, we could have a whole show on the crap that I like to put into my body. But uh, <laughs> I want to talk about the news because it was, it was actually kind of good, especially mm-hmm. like earlier this week. Let's start with the Sandy Hook families. Uh, Sandy Hook families settled for $73 million with a gunmaker over the Sandy Hook massacre. Um, families of people killed in the 2012 massacre at Sandy Hook Elementary School, I cannot believe that was almost 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, in Newtown, Connecticut, said Tuesday, they reached a $73 million settlement in their lawsuit against the maker of the AR-15 style weapon that the gunman used. The agreement was reached with the families of five children and four adults who were killed, and it is the largest such settlement involving a gunmaker and relatives of mass shooting victims. It also is a huge setback to gun manufacturers um, because of the way that the lawsuit was uh, strategized. So basically, the families and their legal team 
sued the gun manufacturers over the way that their guns were um, advertised, which is crazy. I guess I'm not really in the target demo for gun advertisements, but I was sort of taken aback by how it's done. Like, what did you think? Product placement. So one, genius what they decided to do. But same as you, when I started reading through these articles, I was like, wait, the gun manufacturers market this shit in video games? Here's like the, here's the, um, what is it? The uh, the one ad that they that was pretty prominently featured was like, here's your man card back. Oh, consider like, your man card can, reissued. Yeah, thank you, thank you. And I was just like, what the fuck? Culpable as hell. Like, that is crazy. Yeah, yeah, it's super crazy. And yeah, it's, it's marketed to young men. Um, it's clearly intended to kill people. And I think that in uh, in court the legal team made the comparison between a gun manufacturer and a car manufacturer. Like if you were um, Chevrolet and you were marketing a truck with a with a bunch of big spikes in the front that you could drive into groups of people to kill them, yeah. like that that wouldn't be okay. Be problematic. That'd be problematic. Right. But these gu- if guns are not meant to kill people, then why are they being marketed as such? And another part of this uh, settlement, which I I'm very excited about is the families, the families get to release the documents that they found during discovery, um, which they're saying is very damning. And I, I, you know what? I really, I really wish we could talk to our friend, uh, Shannon Watts today, get a sense of how she feels because I bet she's having a good day. I hope she's having a good day. I hope she's having a good day. She deserves a good day. Um, so I, uh, I'm, I'm really excited about that. Another thing Another lawsuit. Sarah Palin's libel case about uh, against the New York Times was thrown out. Yeah, thrown out. But also the jury found it stupid. <laughs> we, the jury, find the defendant fucking They're stupid. They're like, hell no. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the jury was in deliberations starting, I think, this past weekend. While they were in deliberations, unbeknownst to them, the judge in the case announced that he was going to throw the case out regardless of what the jury came up with because the lawyers failed to produce adequate evidence that the newspaper, the New York Times, knew what it wrote about was false or acted recklessly toward uh, toward her. So basically, right. uh, we've talked about this on the show before. Uh, it's really difficult to sue a, a newspaper media outlet um, for uh, libel because you need to prove that the media outlet knew that something was false and intended something to be harmful. It's called the the actual malice standard. And uh, the the judge says that Sarah Palin's legal team failed to prove that. Well, then on Tuesday, the jury came back and announced that they uh, found in favor of the New York Times. Yeah. So uh, it's kind of a double whammy. Back to Wasilla she goes. Um, this is, this is mean, but so is she. So an eye for an eye. Um, did you see that she was wearing like a Canadian tuxedo in the, oh yeah. Yeah. I I mean, you're in court woman. You have millions of dollars. Like you have millions of, if a, if a man, a millionaire man dressed like that, I would of course also rake him. Yes. Yes. Like, you don't wear a fucking Canadian tuxedo to court. Like, especially like different colored, a jean jacket and then a different color of jeans. And it's like, Sarah. If you're going to go for it, you got to go for it. Come on. Like, also, Sarah, don't pretend 
like you don't know better. You spent the last several weeks bopping around Manhattan fancy restaurants, COVID positive. You, Spreading you're, you're COVID. Wearing, you're wearing a costume. God, so ridiculous. Um, so uh, Palin's team is expected to appeal this. And, you know, that would be Good luck. troubling. Yeah, I mean, she can try. I know that there are two Supreme Court justices that indicated they are interested in possibly reviewing the libel laws. But I don't know. You and I have talked about this, or I've I've brought this up. I really think that removing the actual malice standard would make things difficult for a lot of niche right-wing publications. And it would make the rat fuck a lot more difficult. So like, right. um, here, like the crack pipe story that came out last week that turned out to be false, that the yes. Free Beacon— re- So the Washington Free Beacon reported last week um, that the Biden administration had, had proposed paying for crack pipes uh, as a way to stop— drug abuse. First of all, honestly, if that if that were the truth, I would be like, you know what? Can we stop paying for bombs that blow up children? And that would be cool for me. Uh, and yeah, give everyone a, a free America crack bike. But it turned out not to be true at all. So I wonder if a story like that, which was possibly published with the intention to damage, you know, right. it's a good Biden. Point. It's like, I just don't, I don't know. And I, I think that like there was an era um a kind of wild west of the internet where uh, a lot of publications got away with just moving really fast and getting shit up. Um, and uh, maybe that era would just be forever not able to come back if this were to happen. I, I don't know. I'm not a legal scholar, but I guess <laughs> listeners listeners who understand this case in on a deeper level can tell me if I'm wrong here. But it seems like it, it like changing the, the libel standard would ultimately be a sort of right-wing shooting oneself in the dick. Hmm. I don't know. I don't know. Someone should tell us. Because I'm with you on this one. Yeah. I mean, I feel like constitutional law is just this long tail of unintended consequences for things. Like, you have laws that are like, oh, this law was thrown out because of this conservative justice, but then, like, later on, that ruling is applied to something that really benefits people. Anyway, it's just, it's, I'm interested to see what happens, but I do enjoy seeing Sarah Palin disappointed. Yeah, I agree entirely. I think she she spent like a million or somebody spent a million dollars on that case. And now that's down the drain or into some lawyers pockets. Um, We also have Prince Andrew settling a sexual uh, abuse lawsuit with um, Virginia Giuffre. What do you make of this case, Alyssa? You're more into the royals than I am. I mean... Well, let's see. So he was going to have to be deposed in the next couple of weeks. So he has settled for an undisclosed amount. Both of them have signed statements saying that, you know, they're not going to talk about it. But let's be honest. He, uh, it is delightful to see the dumbest royal um, kind of have to be like, okay, I got mixed up in some shady shit. And now I'm kind of admitting it, but I'm not because he hasn't admitted anything. He did make a statement saying that she was clearly uh, a victim of sexual abuse, which was good. He has been um, his his ma has taken away. He's no longer his royal highness. He's still Duke, but he's no longer his royal highness. He no longer gets to do events and he no longer is like part of the military honors. He's just a basic 
Duke. And it seems like yeah. none of his family likes him. And yeah. so that's that's good. I'm glad for that's that. Good. I'm glad for I think that. That, I think that they should have to spell it D-O-O-K as a further. Because <laughs> he's not a real Duke. He's a Duke. Yeah, he's Duke. I feel Duke. like that's. But and that's got to be his title for the rest of his life, Duke D O O K. I think it's the least you can do to a royal who is in, enmeshed in this horrible case, um, in a way that was compelling enough to be brought as a lawsuit. I, yeah, uh, yeah good riddance to bad rubbish there, and I really think that he deserves to have more bad stuff happen to him if, yeah, if what let is the alleged. Door hit yeah. Um, also, we have an accounting firm, which is like usually accounting firm news is not exciting, but this is kind of exciting. Um, the Trump family accounting firm has cut ties with Trump and has said that they do not stand behind the Trump's financial statements anymore. So Mazars USA has been the Trump organization's accountant for a long time, um, and they are no longer the Trump organization's accountant. Uh, and they say they don't stand behind the statements that they signed off of, which has implications that can spread to their ability to obtain credit from banks. Do you think that this is good news or will it just further drive the Trump family into this shadowy international web of dark money? I mean, I think both things are true. Like, I think this is good. And I think that they're going to continue trolling uh, for their money in places uh, that they tried to do favors for while they were president. Mm hmm. Here's the thing about the Trump family and the more we're discovering about the extent to which they were just professional fraudsters and not um, rich and and not actually rich just sort of on they were like you know in the DuckTales theme song when they're running across the bridge that's collapsing behind yeah, them. Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah, that's like the Trump family, but every single board that they're running across is like some sort of fraud that just like collapses right behind. It's it sort of makes me wonder, you know, how these people are not that smart, right? They're not that Donald Trump is not a smart man. I wonder how many actual smart people are engaging in schemes that are more sophisticated than this that involve just a web of fraud and like how widespread it is. Or do you think smarter people right? If I were going to commit fraud, I would end up talking myself out of it because I'd be like, look, I've sewn all these bits and pieces up. I've got my scheme ready to go. But I, I still would know that there would be the chance that I could get caught. And I think that there is a certain level of stupidity that you need to be able mm -hmm. to launch. This, is, this, was the, this was the fable. This was the, the uh, message of inventing Anna. Yeah, totally. <laughs> is that stupid people, stupid people, most rich people are, are kind of stupid. <laughs> That is true. That is that is true. There is no correlation between intelligence and wealth whatsoever. Yeah. Um, no matter what. I mean, and Elon Musk is a great example of that because he seems like a dumbass. But the thing is like, okay, so we did have the Panama Papers where it showed that like a lot of rich people who are respectable rich people are nevertheless engaged in some kind of shady dealings. I just wonder how how many Trumps there are out there who were not stupid enough to become the president of the most powerful nation in the world and expose themselves to so much scrutiny. You know? It's a, it's a mini series I'd watch. Yeah. Who where are the dumbasses? Find where are the dumbasses. <laughs> find the idiots. Uh, and then take their money away and redistribute it to the people who uh deserve it and need it. Okay, uh let's take a quick break. When we come back, we have a great interview that I'm really looking forward to. Can't wait for you guys to hear it. 
And welcome back. Alyssa, you and I have talked a lot about how you and I live in places where the politics aren't super challenging on the ground. Right. And we have talked with admiration for people who do live where the politics are challenging on the ground and who are doing that work. And I'm really, really excited every time we get to talk to one of those people doing that work like today. Oriaku Njaku is the co-founder and executive director of Access Reproductive Care Southeast, an organization that fights for reproductive justice, provides financial assistance and logistical support to people seeking abortions in Alabama, Florida, Georgia, Mississippi, South Carolina, and Tennessee, a challenging set of states indeed. She's an expert on abortion access and the impact of abortion restrictions on Black women and people of color. Welcome, Oriaku. Thank y'all. Thank y'all for having me. We're so glad you're here. Can you talk to us about Access Reproductive Care Southeast and what are currently the biggest challenges that you're facing when it comes to abortion access? Yes. Um, So Access Reproductive Care Southeast is a reproductive justice organization based in Atlanta, Georgia, that does abortion funding in six different states in the Southeast. Um, And so the nature of the work that we do is not only providing direct service um, through mutual aid. So we do abortion funding. We provide funding for logistical support. So, you know, a lot of folks don't think about logistical supports as being barriers to access. Um, And those supports look like rides, lodging, childcare. Um, If you need someone to help sign you in as you're going to your appointment, there's just honestly a wide range of barriers including fear and shame and stigma that are keeping folks from getting the abortions that they want and need. And so our role as an abortion fund is to eliminate those barriers to access. In addition to building power, especially in communities of color, um, around, you know, abolishing that stigma and putting back dignity and justice into the process of getting an abortion. And, you know, The six states that we work in are some of the most hostile states and the most hostile region of this country when thinking about abortion access. It's like every single legislative session, there's always something that their, you know, state legislatures are introducing, whether it's an anti-choice ban, an additional trap law, which is targeted regulation of abortion providers. You know, honestly, they're like, let's throw the stuff on the wall and see what sticks and just try. Um, so, you know, knowing that we live in that region, we're always doing what we can to support Southerners and getting the abortion care that they want and need. Mm-hmm. You've mentioned in past interviews that ARC focuses on the direct service piece of the organization. So it sounds like you mean directly working with patients? And how is that different from what other reproductive rights organizations do? Yeah. So for us, you know, when we're saying reproductive justice, there is that distinction between reproductive health rights and justice. And so the reproductive justice movement was actually founded by 12 Black women who their response to reproductive rights was this idea of being on a choice binary, whether it's like choosing to be a parent or not choosing to be a parent, is not necessarily a reality for Black women or people of color who are accessing care. And so, you know, really acknowledging the fact that when we're talking about the choices that we make, it's not just to choose to be a parent or not. You're thinking about race, gender, your income, the environment, um, you know, economic justice, and if you make a living or thriving wage. So all of these things come into play when folks are deciding whether or not to have an abortion. So, you know, the focus 
that we do as a reproductive justice organization doing abortion funding is that, yes, we are deeply involved with folks every single day on the ground. We have a helpline um, that's open where folks can call to get their abortion funding. They're sharing their stories. Sometimes it's the first voice that they speak to. Um and it's really beautiful, actually, knowing that we have this, like, badass team of folks who's just like, yes, we've got you. We're here. We're going to listen to your story. You know, it's essentially like, you do you, boo. Like, if you want to have an abortion, we've got you. If you don't want to have an abortion, we've got you. Like, whatever you're deciding, knowing that you are going to be affirmed no matter what is part of that work. And, you know, we're on the ground. We're in community one of the things about this is that, you know, we're not doing this just for our community, but with our community, because we're also part of our community. You know, we're also impacted by all these various levels of reproductive oppression that impact us every day. So. Oriaku, how has the uncertainty of Rose's future impacted ARC Southeast's work? Mm, yeah, so <laughs> this is something that I low-key love talking about because, you know, there are a lot of folks who have been like, we're really afraid of this post-real reality. We're really afraid of that. I'm like, y'all, this post-real reality that y'all are afraid of is actually the lived experience of people in the South right now. Um, so yeah, it's scary. It's a hot mess. It's There is some bit of uncertainty, but that uncertainty happens every single year whenever you live in a hostile environment like we do. So, you know, the uncertainty about Roe is like, I hear the conversations, I understand the conversations and the fear. And it's also one of those things that I feel like some folks have just like claimed defeat at this point. They're like, Roe is gutted. We're not going to have our rise. This is it. And I'm like, I play to win. And I know <laughs> my folks in community play to win too. So, you know, if we're talking about our lives and talking about autonomy and being able to self-determine what's best for us and our families, like... The uncertainty of Roe, the legislation, the what happens at the Supreme Court, that's not necessarily going to impact the way that we do our work because we are deeply committed to making sure that folks have access to the care that they want and need no matter what. So, you know, we're like laws be damned, bans be damned, like we are still going to do this work. And it's following this legacy of Southerners who have been doing this work since the beginning of time, you know, whether that is through the civil rights movement or labor justice movements that have happened. Like, we come from a people that do this work, that keep fighting for our rights. So yes, the uncertainty creates a scary environment, but it's been a mess. It's been mm. full of uncertainty. So we're charged up. Like, we're like, we're still going to be doing this work. We're still going to mobilize volunteers. We're still going to fundraise. We're still going to do all the things we can because, you know, the legality of Roe didn't necessarily change how it's not accessible, how abortions mm -hmm. have not been accessible for a while. Yeah. There's a part of me that wonders if those state legislators that spend all their time throwing crazy bills at the wall in all these different states— if Roe is overturned, there's a. it's like, what are you going to do now? Like, what, you're going to have to use your time some other way. Truly. And they will find a way. I mean, you know, it's so interesting that the same folks who 
our anti-choice or anti-abortion legislators are also the same ones introducing anti-trans legislation, the same ones who are introducing legislation that's not protecting, you know, mothers who decide to carry their pregnancy to term. Like, those are the same people. So for me, Mm -hmm. I'm like, well, it's on brand. They're going to find another way, (laughs) find another way to do something. Like, that's one thing that we can count on is they're good at messing stuff up. So, (laughs) yeah. Yeah, seriously. And, you know, it's it seems like it all kind of builds to promoting this environment where, you know, a white man is at the top and everybody else is below and preserving the white American patriarchy seems like at the center of the agenda. And on that note, black women uh, face disproportionate barriers to getting reproductive health care, as you well know, due to systemic racism in our healthcare systems. So what are some ways that we can combat these systems of oppression and why do abortion restrictions affect black women and people of color more than any other community? Mm. I mean, I feel like some of the work that needs to happen is just acknowledging the fact that there are systemic issues um, and also not making the assumption that, oh, well, we have all these things available. That means it's accessible in the same way that, you know, um, Roe v. Wade made abortion legal, but not necessarily accessible. So abortion funds are showing up every single day um, to eliminate those barriers for folks. So, you know, when thinking about the larger systemic issues, even things like, you know, I live in the state of Georgia. Um, There are about 185 counties. 79 of those counties don't have an OBGYN. And I believe nine of those counties don't have a provider like at all. Um, so we're already living in a place where it's already hard to access healthcare, regardless of race. But then when you add race into the conversation, knowing that if I decide to become a mother, I'm three to four times more likely to die at childbirth than folks who are white. And so acknowledging that and just bringing up awareness about you know, what these disparities actually are, I feel like is some of the work that needs to happen. But not only bringing it up, but really asking folks like, you know, there's to me, there's a difference between standing in solidarity and being a co-conspirator or an accomplice. So, you know, that conversation is like, well, how far are all y'all willing to go for our collective liberation? Like, what does that mean? What does like what would a world with reproductive justice look like and how would we be in relationship with each other? And in my vision for that, like dying in childbirth is not even an option, like not having a healthcare provider within 10 miles, not even 25, but 10 miles is not going to be an option because they will be accessible. So, you know, it's going to take a lot of work and a lot of acknowledgement, even a lot of like apologizing to be like, yeah, we created this system. So, you know, and a lot of the systems and the laws were never intended for people like me to thrive. And so when thinking about that, it's like, you know, in the same way that Representative Watchers is like, I'm reclaiming my time. It's like, how do we reclaim control of our bodies and our autonomy and our ability to make decisions that are best for ourselves and our families? So, you know, it's not going to just happen with folks in the reproductive justice movement. It's going to have to happen across movements with all of us being able to make the connection around, you know, I would love to have an awesome healthcare provider, but I don't make $15 an hour. So if I had a job that provided some healthcare, maybe that would help make it more accessible. But really getting people to see that it's not just a repro thing. It's not just a women's right, you know, sort of thing. But it's going to take all of us to create the change that we know is necessary for our communities. 
We've talked a lot about the Hyde Amendment on the podcast. Mm -hmm. And for those who don't remember, the Hyde Amendment is a legislative provision that bars the use of federal funds to pay for abortion. As someone with their boots on the ground in the South, can you talk to us about the real world impacts of the amendment? Oh, yeah. I mean, there's so many impacts on the Hyde Amendment. And one of the things that I'm always like, y'all know this is kind of like, a law that they could just like control alt delete and like remove it you know mm-hmm. it's not something that happens every single year like people make the conscious decision to add it to the budget every single year so you know the fact that now they've we're talking about the Hyde amendment we're talking about what is possible you know and what is even guaranteed so yes right now the Hyde amendment is not necessarily a thing right now but it could be again in the future. So thinking about that, like, you know, I live in a region where there's no Medicaid expansion. And so that means that, you know, even if folks wanted to use their Medicaid to pay for an abortion, they wouldn't be able to use it to pay for their abortion. So, you know, Hyde Amendment keeps folks, whether you're on Medicaid or Medicare, whether you are in the military, so you have TRICARE, um, whether you work for the government or sometimes have state insurance, you're not able um, to use your insurance to pay for abortions. The wild thing to me is that it just feels deeply racist, which that was kind of the intention by Hyde. He was like, well, if we can't stop people from having their abortions, the least we can do is prevent low-income folks from being able to use government money to have abortions, um, which to me was just incredibly wild. But, you know, it it really does feel like even though there's this like constant attack on abortion care that the Hyde Amendment feels like one place where we actually have seen some progress um, politically and definitely within the public. And, you know, the public support, I would say, for ending the Hyde Amendment is definitely increasing and has increased over time. And, you know, Congress did introduce a bill to repeal it last year, which is fantastic and great. And at the same time, removing the Hyde Amendment. And I, I feel like I keep saying this, but Yes, you can remove these amendments to make it easier in theory, but can folks actually still get to their appointments, you know, Um, can actually still use Medicaid or even Medicaid transport. So that is something where, you know, we're here in the Southeast and folks who do have Medicaid, normally they'd be able to like call the Medicaid folks and be like, hey, can you, can I get a bus to go to my doctor's appointment or can I get a ride to my doctor's appointment? Well, because you can't use it for abortion, folks who would be able to have their government funding or government insurance pay for that ride, they're like, no, we're not, you can't use this bus. You can't use the service to actually get to your appointment. So, I mean, I feel like the Hyde Amendment is tied into so many other things. But again, even at that, even if we do make whatever provisions that we need to make around eliminating the Hyde Amendment, access is still going to be an issue. Um, So... You know, you guys are doing really important work, and we so appreciate that. And uh, I, I wonder what day to day fills you with hope and the energy to keep going. This is one of those things that I truly love because I get so much joy 
um, in pleasure in doing this work. And I feel like that is to be able to do something that you truly love is such an honor. I mean, for me, it's when we're talking on the phones with someone and they're really trying to figure out how to get the remaining $200 to pay for their abortion. And we're like, oh, fam, we got you. Like, we'll get take care of this $200. That to me, like hearing that sigh of relief from folks and just being like, oh my God, I, I didn't even know how I was going to do this. That brings me so much joy. Um, the resistance brings me joy. So knowing that we're like, okay, yeah, we live in a state with no Medicaid expansion. We live in a state that they're introducing some wild legislation, not only in the state, but our region. And knowing that we're still doing the work in spite of all of that brings me so much joy. Um, And really, you know, truly believing that we're going to achieve some level of reproductive justice in our lifetimes is the thing that like always makes me keep fighting. Um, I know in doing this work, it has transformed me and my entire life by doing this work. And, you know, I like to tell folks, it's like, I drank the Repro Kool-Aid early on and I'm into it. Like, this is my jam. I'm all about it. And just wanting to create those environments where people feel safer and braver to speak out against oppression, that is also what brings me joy. So, you know, there there are a lot of things in this work as mad as it may be, as like infuriating as it gets at the same time, knowing that I'm in a community of folks who are committed to be like, uh, we're going to take care of our folks no matter what. And so that brings me a lot of joy. That's great. Thank you so much for joining us, Oriaku Njaku. Can you tell our listeners where they can find out more about your organization? Yes. So you can definitely visit our website. It's arc-southeast.org. We're pretty active on social media. So on Twitter and Instagram, our um, handles are at arc underscore southeast. Um, So that's A-R-C underscore southeast. And yeah, I mean, if you visit the website and get on the newsletter, folks will be able to get more information on what we're doing, the different events that we're having, and just the different ways that we create environments for folks to join this movement and join us in making reproductive justice a reality. So that's what I'd say. Great. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. I'm sure our listeners are happy to hear from you and good luck with everything. Thank you. all Thank you so much. This episode is brought to you by IQ Bar. Power up your life with superior brain and body nutrition products from IQ Bar. Their plant protein bars are the perfect low-carb breakfast. Their IQ Mix zero-sugar hydration drinks replenish electrolytes. And their IQ Joe mushroom coffees will keep you focused all day long. Start each day right with IQ Bar's brain and body boosting bars, hydration mixes, and mushroom coffees. Their ultimate sampler pack includes all three. IQ Bar empowers doers with superior brain and body nutrition. All their products are entirely free from gluten, dairy, soy, GMOs, and artificial sweeteners. And today, Hysteria listeners get an exclusive offer of 20% off plus free shipping. Just text HYSTERIA to 64000. One thing I love about IQ Bar is, first of all, right now it's really dry where I am. Oh, okay. It is hard for me to stay hydrated. 
I just like, I, I'll just be going through my day and I'll be like, why am I so like parched? I'm parched. I'm in a bad mood. I feel like I'm going to pass out. And it's, ah, you got to drink some water. You got to stay hydrated. I really like their IQ Mix Zero Sugar Hydration Drinks because it allows me to rehydrate myself at a time yeah. when I feel like the atmosphere is trying to take all my moisture away. Well, and sometimes you need more than just water. Sometimes you need more more than just water. I also love IQ bars because I love a portable breakfast. I love a grab-and-go breakfast. No dishes. Love something I can walk around holding and eating. I like something I can eat in my car without endangering the lives of me and every other motorist on the road. A breakfast burrito. <laughs> not, not the safest thing to eat behind the wheel. IQ bar, go ahead and do it. Good for you. Great ingredients. Helps you... Stay focused and alert throughout the day. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, and you don't have to dirty any dishes. Refuel smarter with IQ Bar's Ultimate Sampler Pack. That's seven IQ Bars, four IQ Mix sticks, and four IQ Joe sticks. And now our special podcast listeners get 20% off all IQ Bar products plus get free shipping. To get your 20% off, just text Hysteria to 64000. Get your discount. Text Hysteria to 64000. That's H-Y-S-T-E-R-I-A to 64000. Message and data rates may apply. See terms for details. And welcome back. Alyssa, when you hear the word sisters, what do you think next? The movie White Christmas. (laughs) I knew you were going to say that. (laughs) I knew you were going to say that. So you have a sister. Yeah. That that song, Sisters, Sisters, Never Were There Such Devoted Sisters, uh, that is like an inside joke between the two of you. And it's, it's something that you share. Same with my sister and me. I think it's a very common thing for sisters. It never gets old. Never. I think after this, I'm going to text my sister and say sisters. No, sisters. all you have to do, there's a great emoji or a great meet, whatever they're called. If you type it in, it comes up and the two of them are singing in their blue costumes and it's terrific. <laughs> oh, nice. Yeah, that's a that would always be a welcome surprise that that little. And I don't gif. I'm calling it a gif. It's is not it a, a gif? gif? Whatever. It's you it's guys. A, I'm, it's, I can't I believe I'm showing my age. I'm like, is it a meme? Is it a gif? I don't know. I think it's a gift. Well, you know, look, the the sister relationship is a super important relationship. And by that token, we have eight women on this show today. Um, but actually, only four people have microphones. So first, uh, she is a writer and actor who you can see in the upcoming series on Elizabeth Holmes, The Dropout, which premieres on Hulu on March 3rd. Michaela Watkins. Hi there, you guys. It's so good to see your face. Oh. Is this your first show of 2022 with us? I believe, I think so. Uh, oh let's gosh. just assume yes, because uh, everything <laughs> oh is gosh. a blur. But uh, you are my hysteria sisters, and um, and I adore you. <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know what's funny? The first thing that I wanted to ask you, in a, you know, in addition to how are you doing, etc., is like how are your how are your dogs getting along? You've got like a little <sighs> dog sister. Yeah, my um, the dog sister just yesterday went to the hospital while I was away. So um, she got stung by something. I don't know. The dog sitter walked into the room and her entire face was blown up. Oh, and um, oh. yeah, and her eyes couldn't even open. And so, you know, this is the closest I am to motherhood. And I just, uh, I'm on like a little mini vacation and I couldn't 
relax or enjoy myself one bit until I knew that the injections were working and that her eyes were starting to open. I think she got stung by a bee. She's always got her curious little fella. She's always got her (laughs) snout in something. And uh, I think it, I think she learned about, you know, bees yesterday. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, we've all got that story about how we learned about bees. I'm glad, I'm glad she's doing better. And I'm glad that you can relax a little bit today because that is so nerve wracking. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Nothing like, nothing like the phone call where they're like, so everything's fine, but we have a little emergency. (laughs) (laughs) We're on our way to the hospital. It's like, what? <laughs> that sentence just keeps getting worse. Um, but I'm glad she's I'm glad she's doing better. And I hope she learned your lesson and doesn't do that again. Yeah. Um, and uh, I'm excited to also welcome to the panel. She just won a Webby Anthem Award for Leader of the Year in the Human and Civil Rights category, and is of course Crooked Media's senior political director. Also, hey, donate to our Senate fund to help protect our four most vulnerable Senate seats in Arizona, Georgia, Nevada, and New Hampshire. Go to votesaveamerica.com/slash. Donate. Shaniqua McClendon, welcome. Hi, thank you for having me. This is my first show of the year, I am pretty sure. (laughs) And I just learned about bees. Well, I've known about bees, but I got stung for the first time in 2020. (laughs) I went for a hike. What? Yeah, I have avoided it. I've been afraid of it because I've seen, you know, when you're a kid, everyone else gets stung. And I avoided it until I was like, how old was I in 2020? 32, three. And I went on a hike at Griffith and... I'm just starting my hike. And then I just felt something in my ankle. And somehow it got like past my shoe and stung me in the ankle. And Ooh. I just sat on the ground for five minutes. Like, what happened? Oh, uh. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> That's horrible. That's a horrible way to learn about bees on a hike. Because did you have to turn around? Now, I should not have done the hike. But I did do the hike up to the Hollywood sign. And, you know, my ankle hurt the whole time. But in my head, in my head, it wasn't like a bone. It was just like, oh, it's swollen and sore, but I haven't broken any bones, so it doesn't feel good. But it'll be fine. Was your first thought like, what if I'm allergic? And like, what if I stop breathing? What if? Oh, what if wow. I go to anaphylactic shock? No. Okay, no. I should not, okay, not. Okay, so what you're saying is not Jewish, is what you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, I did not even think about that. Which, well, I guess in my girl, there are a lot of bees, so. Yeah, but I still that wasn't just the one B. That wasn't just the one B. The other night I was eating uh, ice cream that has peanut butter in it. It was like peanut butter cup ice cream from uh, Ben and Jerry's. And my tongue started feeling itchy. And I was like, am I allergic to peanuts? (laughs) Absolutely not. I've never once been allergic. But but like that was my first thought was like, am I allergic? (laughs) No. You're not allergic to this very common food. Um, Shaniqua, I learned something very interesting about you. Oh this week. And that is that you are a, not only a twin, but an identical twin. Yes. Yes. So I always tell people, I don't know why I say this, but I feel the need to say this. The doctor said we're identical. I feel like we should get one of those like tests adult twins get to make sure because if we had (laughs) the same DNA, like me and my sister don't look alike. People can tell we're sisters, but like different complexions, different heights, like we're just not the same. And so- I just question it sometimes. Although I did go <laughs> on a date with this guy once who was like in medical school and I told him my theory about us not actually being identical. And he said, which I should have researched this, but you know, he's in medical school, identical twins where um, the the egg splits earlier, there's more time for them in the womb to kind of 
develop differently versus if it splits later, then they've like kind of developed the same for, for longer. So that seemed like it made sense. I was like, yeah, maybe. that sounds truthy. That <laughs> <Yeah>. sounds truthy. <laughs> and reasonable. Yeah. Um, yeah. Did you, so were you and your sister, obviously you were the same age, you were in the same year in school. Were you close growing up and do you continue to be close? Yeah, we like had the same friends, um, like literally all the same friends. We shared a car in high school and we worked at the same job, Domino's Pizza. So we were just like always together. Um, But then in college, we decided to go to different schools, which was different from the other twins we knew. Like most of them uh, went to college together. But I think we just had grown up always being, where are the twins well, where's your sister? Twin one, twin two. Like, we were just always this package. And so it was nice to finally just take a break and go kind of have our own identities where other people, you know, they knew we were twins, but didn't know who the twin was. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's so interesting. I can't imagine having an experience with a sister that was so like exactly <laughs> my age. My sister is almost six years younger than me. And so we didn't grow up with any sibling rivalry mm-hmm. because like, by the time we weren't near at the same phase in life. Um, so it's, you know, yeah. it totally changes. Michaela, you have a sister too. I have two sisters. Yo, you have two sisters. Yeah. How's that going? Well, it's so <laughs> interesting listening to you, Shaniqua, because you were always with someone, like you had a constant companion. My sisters are six and a half and eight years older than me. And so mm-hmm. um, I was very much a little sister. And I spent a lot of time alone, obviously, because what I like to do at eight and what they like to do at 15 and 16 were not the same things. So I I had such a solitary sort of childhood um, where they represented things for me. Um, and they were, and this is the thing about us sisters, is that we couldn't be more different from each other. So it's not even like two of us are bookish and one of us is a party girl. It's like the three of us are our triangle. Like we could not be more different. One is, you know, we called her a nerd, super pragmatic, like bookish. Um, she's now a corporate attorney. The other one was like, did all the drugs in high school and she's, uh, was a painter. And now she, you know, is a, knows everything to know about dogs and chickens. And then there's me who was like, just wanted attention <laughs> and uh, <laughs> became an actor and uh, and was like sort of the comic uh, outlet for for everybody in my family that I, that I was the one that was sort of like, don't fight. Look at me. Everybody's going to be OK. <laughs> and 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 so we, we we it's really strange how we kind of all found a space of personality in our house and then just filled those spaces. But we don't mm-hmm. overlap at all. So it's just so cool and wild to imagine having a twin or somebody <laughs> that you are in total concert with for most of your life. I can't even handle being around anybody for <laughs> extended periods of time without a chapter break. Can I just add one thing? I do have a younger sister and I feel like if somehow this got out and there was no mention of her, it would be that kind of <laughs> younger, uh, the youngest sibling, uh, you know. Michaela, you probably know what it's like being the youngest. Oh, yeah. So I, I don't want whatever that vibe is to pop up. Like you didn't even mention me. <laughs> oh yeah, don't don't forget about me. Is like the the youngest kid vibe, and they're usually the least forgotten about in the family. Thank you, a hundred percent. Well, like they're the. 
Okay. I mean, my nobody was man in the store by the time I was doing anything. My, oh, okay. It was sort of like, have you seen the young one? No, I thought you. <laughs> like oh, I'm man. over here. I'm in a. I'm in a well. <laughs> oh no. Um. So Alyssa, you know, recent research into um, the sibling bond has found that it's among the most important in our lives, like more important than most friendships, more important than most romantic relationships, uh, because it lasts the longest. It lasts, it can last your entire life. And the research has also found that sister relationships are the closest and most competitive. Does this resonate with you? We're not, I mean, my sister and I are not remotely competitive because I think we couldn't be more different. But in terms of like the closeness, I mean, it's like we will call each other like when we're busy and we, or like if I know Lauren's been busy or she knows I've been busy, she'll just call me up and say, just wanted to say, love my sis and like hang up. You know, like that's just Aww. what I, I don't know if you guys have this. We speak in different voices than we do with other people. Mm -hmm. Like our the way that she and I communicate is several octaves higher than our normal <laughs> speaking voice. But I think that like, you know, when you think about it, I think that you and your sibling are the, or you and your sister are the only people who really experience the family dynamic. You may have different interpretations, but you're there for the whole thing. And so it's like, you know, when my Oma got older and as my parents get older, I mean, we'll just see them. And like, Lauren and I discussed this because I was like, I don't want to say anything that's going to fuck you up. And she was like, no, I'm like, but we thought when we talk about mom and pop getting older or like seeing Oma get older, we'll just have like sidebar conversations. It's like, yo, you can never get mad at me when I start talking crazy when I get older. And you just have to remind me that these things happen so that like, like, I think that we just have this like real, because we have a small family. So we're like, you, we can never leave each other because we're kind of all we have. And that's our, that's our, that's our pact. Right. Right, exactly. Um, Shaniqua, what is your current dynamic with your sister? Your your twin sister and the younger one that we cannot forget about. Yes, yes. Um, you know, me and my twin sister have always pretty much had the same re relationship. We've just been together all the time. And then when we separated, we just kept each other up to date on everything. I remember last week, I mean, we typically speak like almost every day. And so I didn't, I text her and I didn't hear from her. And I called her and she didn't respond. And then I was like, are you alive? And she's like, oh, sorry, I just had a busy day. But it's like one of those things, like, if I don't hear from her, like yesterday, actually, I did not hear from her, but she called me this morning. And so like, she's okay. Um, and, you know, honestly, me and my younger sister have gone through a lot of ups and downs. When we were younger, her and I got along perfectly. Um, and, you know, I was the oldest. And even though I'm a twin, I was I'm 19 minutes older and I was treated as the oldest. So kind of like helping cook dinner and just like filling in and all those spaces. So I did a lot to help my younger sister because my mother worked two jobs. But then as we got older, I'm not sure where the friction started, but things just kind of we weren't always seeing eye to eye and her and my other twin sister actually got um, pretty close. And so now we um, we actually had a pretty big fight in 2020 and now are in a better place. Um, and she has a son. So I've been trying to do my best to make sure we can work on our relationship so that I can, you know, have a relationship with my nephew. But we've definitely had our ups and downs. And I think it's just because she's, you know, we've just taken different paths. Um, mm -hmm. And I think had to finally get to the point where it was like, Shaniqua, that's not your life. Like she literally gets to live her life. You should support the decisions she's, she makes and, and be there for her, not 
you know, look at everything through through the lens of my, you know, life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sometimes when I'm in an argument with my sister, it sort of reminds me of that picture of like the two Spider-Men pointing at each other. <laughs> yeah. Because like we both know exactly what the other one's about mm-hmm. and we can't pull anything. We can't pull the wool over each other's eyes. Like there's no bullshitting your sister and um, there's no lying to your sister. There's no smoothing things over with a sister. Um, And I think that that's part of why, like when things haven't been like perfect between me and my sister, it feels very, it's like a very vulnerable Mm -hmm. kind of fight. Yeah. It's sad. Yeah. It it really gets to you. And, you know, I've talked to my therapist a lot about it because and, you know, at the end of the day, we're like sisters. And, you know, I I think it's sometimes hard to look at other sisters, be it my friends or on television, and everyone seems like best friends. And I'm just like, man, mm-hmm. that's actually what I would want, you know, between all three of us. So, you know, mm-hmm. in due time. Yeah, Alyssa, you were nodding at the part when um, Shaniqua was talking about the fighting thing. And it seems like something about that resonated with you. Oh, yeah. No, it's like uh, if I think so, it's it's funny because I am in the family. I am the sensitive one and my sister is the stoic one. And when it comes to fighting, not even fighting, but just having like a disagreement, it's taken us years for us to be able to understand, like she has never weaponized my sensitivity against me and I don't weaponize her stoicism against her. But it's like, if something happens and she thinks I'm mad at her, it's like, you know, immediate text. Are you, are you mad at me? Like, what is this? It's like, you feel there is something so unsettling about when you think that like, when I think there is discord between my sister and I, you know, and it's like, she like grew up kind of mean. She knows this. I'm not saying anything she doesn't know. She was like a mean baby. She was a mean toddler. Um, She got in trouble for a lot of whack shit. Like, you know, she used to take her tricycle. (laughs) Hey, Lauren. She used to take her tricycle in nursery school and drive it through sandcastles of other kids. She was just very specific. When she'd get mad, you know, those little walkers they used to put babies in. I don't know if they still do it, but it's like that little saucer with the feet and you can just like Mm -hmm. scoot around. So she'd get mad and she'd like scoot herself into my bedroom and just bite my bed, just like full mouth open, (laughs) unhinge her jaw and just like attack my bed. And so, you know, she has always been the one, like when we were growing up, if my, if I did something a little, uh, like a little naughty, right? My mom would get mad at me and I would be sent up to my room and I'd be so sad. And finally I'd be like, can I come back down? And when Lauren Mm -hmm. would get in trouble, she would send herself upstairs. And when my mom was like, Lauren, you can come back down. She'd be like, now. So it's like, (laughs) we we really couldn't be more different. But because of that, I just think that we, you know, we really try now. But like, if I think that I have upset her or she doesn't text me back, I'll be like, what's going on? Like, what's going on? There is, a, it's just that vulnerability when you think that your sister is mad at you. Mm-hmm. It's just, uh, it's real, no matter how old you get. <laughs> yeah. Michaela, um, as you have gotten older and your sisters have gotten older, has your dynamic changed? Are you closer now? Oh my gosh, we're so close now. We are so close. I mean, as as kids... My sister, Becca, um, and she knows this as well, you know, she was sort of triangulate us. So she was, she was sort of the bully and she would either, um, be coming after me and she was violent. Like she, she was, it was physical, you know, we had some physical throwdowns or she would go after my sister, Sarah. And Sarah was like, just wanted to be in her room reading a book away from the chaos of our family. And we had that kind of dynamic with parents who were, 
like, oh, Sarah's good at math and Becca's good at colors, you know, and <laughs> Mickey is, Mickey is Mickey. But it was like, um, Mickey was what my name is in my family. But, but you know, it was, um, it was this thing where I knew that I had to align myself with Becca to, you know, I was never going to win points. Sarah and I were never going to team up against Becca. Like we were never going to win points there. So um, in order to deflect uh, the attention off of me, I, I would um, be like, let's go pick on Sarah, you know? And so we were really <laughs> shitty to each other as kids, really, really awful. And um, and then just like these big swings where my sister Becca, who was like the ringleader, would suddenly throw me the most incredible birthday party. You know, she would decorate the, you know, just go all out decorating the entire basement for my, you know, fourth grade birthday party or like make the, or, or spin the records for it or whatever, you know. As adults, Becca is the, I would say, like quietest, most, um, meek is a word that I'm coming up with, but, you know, I'm sure she would agree with it, but I don't necessarily mean it. It just means she's gone from being like the bully as kids to the most sensitive. And Sarah mm. and I sort of rally around her and and want to want to be there for her and take care of her. And and she does that for us. And we're so close as adults. Um, we acknowledge like our parents' uh, uh, eccentricities. And we also have grandparents who uh who and great grandparents who don't speak to their siblings. Like it's this sort of weird Jewishy immigrant thing where there's this crazy old world hostility. And you think about the stresses that they had coming over here and 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 planting families in the States and the vendettas, like where this person doesn't talk to this person. And it's like, you were all you had. How is it that you don't talk to this other person in this new world anymore. And my sisters and I were given um, some jewelry that had been smuggled in by my grandmother that she doesn't, you know, has no relationship with her sister over it. And my dad was trying to be really careful about, you know, how do we divide it between who gets what? I mean, most of it was costume jewelry. It wasn't anything special. It was just smuggled in and therefore sentimental and important. But my sisters and I just knew, we were like, we are never, ever, ever going to fight over material things. We just never are. Nothing is ever more important than our sisterhood. And well, that's good because if you if you fight over jewelry and it ruins a relationship, the jewelry becomes cursed. Yeah, <laughs> it's true. <laughs> I I think that might be true because my sister got a diamond, an, an actual diamond, and we were like, just take it because she was the one who um, stepped in the most financially and took care of us when we were really strapped. I mean, my sister, when I graduated college, I, I, she stepped in and was like, you have to have health insurance, you idiot. And I was like, mm -hmm. I don't think I do. And she's like, I'm getting you health insurance. So we're just like, take the actual diamond. She sold it immediately because she was like, it's cursed, <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> Maybe you escaped the curse of, of that smuggled yeah. diamond, <laughs> exactly. the fight diamond. Exactly. Um, yeah. Shaniqua, I wonder uh, what like moments have you and your sisters shared that you consider kind of unique to your relationship? Yeah. Um, uh I think um, Alyssa said this, sorry if you didn't, but um, 
just literally our family. Um, you know, when you think about like conversations you have with some of your best friends about like life and stuff, you have to do some like explaining of the backstory when you're talking about your family, but with your sisters, it's just kind of like, do you remember that time this happened? And it's like, just a random thing one of your parents did. And it's like, yeah, but like, what is wrong with them? Or I can just be like, oh, I spoke to daddy today. And he was like, trying to tell me what to do. And it's like, ah. we're at, like 34. Why is he always trying to tell us what to do? And so like, we just have these easy reference points. Um, and not to make this a depressing conversation. But I think even, you know, my mother died when I was uh, 22. And that is just something that a lot of my friends, I mean, now that we're older, they're starting to experience that. But only my sisters I can really talk to about losing a mother so young and, you know, not to diminish other people's experiences, but I think it's different when you, you know, I was just starting kind of my adult life at that point and just mm. like, I don't know what's going on. And so Oof. it's very different if I was to like lose her today where I'm like 34 now and have got a better grasp on life. And so, you know, when her birthday comes around or the anniversary of her death or Mother's Day, it's like, they know what I'm feeling. Um, and so mm -hmm. I don't have to explain anything. And it's, it's not just people like, Oh, I'm so sorry. It's like, no, I get it. And it's really hard. Right. And that's something that, you know, when going back to the, the research on sibling bonds, I was talking about earlier, that they found that when a parent dies, siblings, uh, and specifically sisters, like lean on each other and experience that yeah. together in a way that's totally different than, any other people in, in their lives. The other day, um, and this is, I, I don't, if I tear up, it's because I'm extremely hormonal still. Um, but the other day I was like, I was playing with Juniper, my baby. And uh, I had this thought, cause like intrusive thoughts are a fun thing that happens after you have a kid. You're like, what's, ah, I could drop her. What if the floor opens up and we fall down? It's just all crazy, <laughs> like intrusive anxiety thoughts. But I thought, what if Juniper is alone at me or Josh's funeral? Like, what if she doesn't have a sibling? And I just like bawled. I spent like like two hours. I was like, Josh, you have to come home. <laughs> I'm crying. Um, but, you know, that's the thing. Like my brother and sister and I, my brother and I are close to, but this isn't a brother's show. This is a <laughs> sister's show. Um, I know that when we experienced loss within our families, when our grandparents passed, my siblings were really important. My sister was a really important person to talk to. And Shaniqua, you're absolutely right about that, like, shorthand that you have with your siblings. Like, I can say, yeah, I, I got home and dad was mowing the lawn without a shirt on covered in oil. And she understands that that's, like, his thing. And it's funny that he's, like, a 65-year-old man who's still doing that because he still wants to get a tan. Um, so, you know, it's, it, I, I totally agree that the shared weird memories are some of the best. Um, Alyssa, I know that you guys have some shared weird memories too, you and your sister. What are some of your favorites? Oh my God. I think that, so when, again, because like, you know, it's like sisters and we have a code. So before we did this conversation, I got on the horn with my sister and I was like, we're going to talk about sisters on hysteria. And I said, what's your favorite memory? And so funny enough, we had a favorite memory that occurred within this, like this two day period. And it was just, we used to go to Hawaii and you guys, this makes 
no sense. But the fact that this is what came to both of us when I asked her the question, we used to go to Hawaii growing up because my dad traveled so much that he had all these frequent flyer miles. And guess what? Back in the 80s, Hawaii was cheaper than Disney World. And so we would go and we were like at the uh, ABC discount drugstore and we were like, can we get boogie boards? And I think I was probably 12 and Lauren was eight thereabouts. So we get to, we're in Maui and we get to the beach and my dad's like, can you two handle this? And we're like, yeah. And he's like, Alyssa, watch your sister. So I was sitting on the beach listening to Michael Bolton, which was our favorite tape to listen to in Maui in the eighties. And Lauren fucking drifted out to sea. Like she was on that boogie board and she was just floating away. <laughs> so I went in to oh try to get her. I went in to try to get her and I couldn't. So I had to go get my dad. Now I remembered her being like vomited onto the beach by a big wave, but she's like, no, Pop had to come and get me. So oh, no. we do that. But our favorite memory of the trip was the following day, which was when we were so tired from the upheaval on the beach the day before <laughs> that my parents were like, we're going to get you to Burger King and you can stay in the room. We always shared a bed. Like we were people who, when you vacationed, the whole family stayed in one room. There was no like separate room for parents and kids. Yeah. And we were like, yeah, we're, what are we kings? <laughs> like, Jesus Christ, we're fine. I mean, you guys, I think I stayed with my parents in a hotel room like two years ago before COVID <laughs> because like, why would you spend extra money? But so we both were like, fucking that Burger King was like the best Burger King we ever had because we were like by ourselves without mom and pop. And it was like, but the whole thing, it was like the whole 48 hour period that we both, it was just funny because it was what we both thought of. It's what I thought of before I called her. And then it was what she thought of when I asked her. <laughs> so that's my favorite weird memory. The time Lauren was almost taken out to sea. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Um, I, uh, my sister and I also used to share a bed because we didn't have, like our house was not very big. There wasn't really room. Plus it was like cold a lot and it was just easier if you were under the same covers to share heat. And even then we slept under a pile of blankets because a wood stove is not sufficient to heat a house of that small size even. Um, but I used to, when I was old enough to read, I would memorize like fairy tales, weird fairy tales, like not like Cinderella, like Disneyfied fairy tales, like ones where birds come and pluck bad princesses eyes out like those like brutal fairy tales. I would memorize them or try to memorize them. And then I would tell them to my sister <laughs> at night and or I would like combine the different fairy tales and tell them tell her stories like that. And that was really fun. Um, but sometimes I think I, I I also like there's also bad bad memories in that I was like the bad sibling because I was the oldest. And so I was the ringleader. And I would sometimes pit them against each other. Like I would tell Mike that Mary, he used to have an airplane that flew and Mary broke it. And then I would tell Mary that Mike did something to like ruin her life. And <laughs> anyway, that's kind of how I maintained order in that household. Um, <laughs> Um, Michaela, what are some of your, besides the like sisterly beatings, what are some of your <laughs> most vivid, uh, memories that you share with your sisters from I mean, when you were younger? We joke about the sister beatings because like my sisters and I have such a lethal sense of humor with each other and we are, we are rough. We are harsh. You cannot be sensitive when you're in the room with us. You can't be like, that hurt my feelings. Okay. Like there's no room for any of that. And we all three collectively had to learn how to make fun of other people in life, like <laughs> boyfriends and things like that, because we would just go for the jugular. We just thought that was, I thought that was totally normal because that's how 
we did it. We had really tough skin and, um, and I think pretty sharp senses of humor. But uh, my dad would do this thing when um, he would have a new girlfriend. We called it the, <laughs> like the annual rite of passage test where he would take these girlfriends on these really rigorous, horrible hikes um, that we were <laughs> so used to as kids because my dad was, it was like Mosquito Coast fantasies that he had. Like he was just really... Um, you know, he was all about roughing it in the in the wilderness. And we were indoctrinated very young. And we would watch him take his new girlfriend on these trips. And we were mentally prepared, but they never were. And we were in the White Mountains um, hiking, you know, through a lightning storm with metal packs on her backs. You know, I'm nine. My sisters are teenagers. And I'm watching this woman... <laughs> with my dad, who had to be the first one to the hut. Like, you know, he had to like ditch his entire, all the women that he was hiking with to go be the first one, like to <laughs> just sort of pat himself on the back. And it was this moment that we laugh about all the time because we just realized, oh my God, our dad's a shitty boyfriend. <laughs> like, <laughs> we, just, we always thought, you know, that his girlfriends just couldn't keep up and they would always break up pretty soon after. And we're like, no. He's actually just a really shitty, shitty boyfriend, and um, and the the test that that every woman had to go. He's now been married for like over thirty years to someone that he's very, very happy with. But uh, and she seems to think he's great. So, <laughs> so bully for, bully for them. But anyway, uh, that is that is definitely baked into our our childhood memories. Oh man. Um, so one thing that I've thought about as I was prepping for the show is that, you know, you have your sisters that you were born with and there's nothing really that can replace that relationship because it's so unique. But then there's sort of like the sisters that you meet along the way, the people that you um, have a long-standing friendship with or uh, have a relationship that really endures through many years. And Shaniqua, do you have people like that in your life? Women like that Absolutely. in your life? Um, there's like several people I could name, but especially... My friend Jasmine, she actually tells everyone we're cousins because we are so <laughs> close. And I think the backstory is like our grandparents or siblings or something like that, which is not true. But um, <laughs> we we met in college and actually didn't get closer until we both lived in D.C. And we like lived three blocks from each other. And we would just spend all of our time together, like discussing politics and life and all this stuff. And we know each other's like deepest, darkest secrets, never hold them against each other. Um, and she's just... Yeah, like, you know, she'll call me in the middle of the workday and I'm like, yeah, I have time to talk. Let's chat. And so um, and now, she, you know, she just had a daughter and, you know, it's just amazing to like be a part of that. But yeah, I've, she actually has six brothers and sisters. So I don't know how we how she had time to even develop this relationship with me. <laughs> um, but yeah, she's just yeah, it, it's great to be able to have those people because, you know, like now my younger sister has a child, a three, three and a half year old. And my twin sister is engaged. And so they have like these big other things in their lives. So it's nice to have those other friends who, you know, can be like sisters as your own sisters start to, you know, not have to. Yeah, they have people who are more important than you in their lives. Oh, I don't <laughs> think that's I don't think that's true. My sister had a, a baby 
example. He's like six now, but so she had a kid before I did. And I think that when she had a kid, it helped us become like closer because I was an adult that she could talk to yeah, <laughs> instead of a, a baby. You know, there's something really nice about having a a person you can count on, like a close friend that is a grown up human yeah. who can, you know, who understands you like a grown up yeah. human understands you. And you become you. friends, not just like, oh, we're just sisters. But as you get older, it does you see it more as a friend, or at least I see it more um, kind of as a friendship and not just, oh, we have the same parents. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Michaela, do you have women that you've kind of grown with to think of as almost like sisters? Absolutely. Unfortunately, my my nearest and my dearest from when I was four years old, who was like, we just shared a brain. When we were 35, she died of cancer. And Ugh. it was it was like losing a sister. It was like somebody who took to the grave all our memories. And I mean, just the shorthand that we had with each other because, because she was my chosen sister and not my my born sister, we just had, we, we cultivated each other's um, personalities and sense of humor. You know, we gravitated to each other for a reason. And, and, you know, like Shaniqua, when you were talking about this date that you went on, who explained why, why you twins might be different, we would just come up pre- pre-Google, we would come up with reasons for why everything in the entire world happened. And if they sounded good enough, we'd be like, great, that's what it is. And I still actually, you know, think about so many things. I'm like, well, well, Becca, her name is also Becca, just like my sister. But I would be like, well, Becca, (laughs) I remember Becca explained like why these things happen. And I still, you know, think that that's why we have like tides and things like that, which are just all bullshit. Um, (laughs) But, but I was such a, um, a, a, I I hung out with dudes so much in my teens and twenties. And then in my late twenties and thirties and forties. And now I just have such an incredible female group of friends that are sisters to me. It's a, it's a full tribe. I mean, mm-hmm. um, and that is something where we don't are, are not harsh. We don't have mean sense of humor. You don't have to be tough. It, we are a mess. We unravel emotionally around each other. We turn to each other for everything and, um, and show our whole, our whole bellies to each other. It's, Mm -hmm. it's, um, such a beautiful thing, the female friendships and how they are, they are going to give me life. Like when we do start to lose the people who came before us, you know, and, and thank God for them. And I do like shudder sometimes thinking like, what if I had to live in a world without, these certain, you know, friends of mine. I I really don't know what I would do. Um, in terms of like best friend, that sort of thing, I've always weirdly pivoted that to my romantic partner. Um, I have a group of women that are, like I said, like a tribe, but that one like person that elevates above and beyond everybody has always, for me, been a romantic partner. And it's been interesting because I have a lot of girlfriends who have that in a friend. Um, but I, I have, I have my, my, my band of ladies, you know, that I just love so much and turn to for so many things and vice versa. But, Mm -hmm. but my one like mishpucha, my soul, my whatever is, is my husband, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's interesting that the, 
that you're, you met your husband when you were in your thirties. You late, met like, your, I was your, about to turn 40. Yeah. Yeah. And you mm-hmm. met, um, your female friends, a lot of your female friends over the course of your life. So yeah. it's kind of cool that like a sister type figure or a person that is like really important to your soul can come into your life pretty yeah. much at any point. Oh, you know? it's so true. I just like, I never thought I'd make new friends cause I have such great friends, <laughs> but I, I just, you know, two years ago, I have a new, a new buddy who is like a sister. She goes into my bathroom and starts to like playing with all my tinctures and <laughs> my, my, my creams and everything. And I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah. All right. <laughs> oh, that is so, that is sister yes. behavior. Going yeah. into somebody's bathroom with a sense of entitlement yes. to their creams. Yes. That is extremely sisterly behavior. When I'm at home, if, if my sister is also at home, I will go into her makeup if I'm missing something. Like what? No, that's not okay. I but know. she'll do the same to me. I yeah. do the she'll same. Totally- Totally same to me. Um, Alyssa, same question to you. Like how have, you know, your female friendships and relationships become sister-like as, as you've gotten older? Yeah. Well, my best friend, Kara has been my best friend since fourth grade, third grade. And so she really fits the bill because she saw all the growing up stuff. You know, we were always at each other's houses. She was close with my sister and it actually culminated a few years ago when, uh, my hubs and I were doing our wills. That's a real mind fuck. And we were Ugh. doing our wills. We were doing our living will. And, you know, you have to make the decision if he is, if my husband has predeceased me, you know, who will take care of my things, you know, who will make sure if I'm, I don't know, who will pull the plug essentially. And so I asked my sister, she got so upset. She's like, I could never. Can you please ask Kara? <laughs> so Kara's like, absolutely. And I was like, thank you so much. And so it's like, they are like the two sides of the coin for me. And, uh, you know, no matter what, the first person after I got vaccinated, double, double vaxxed, the first thing, Kara and I were just back and forth nonstop, like sending each other information so that when we were both two weeks out from our second vac, she was the first person. I picked her ass up at the train station and we just like, she was the one person who I was like, I have to, I have to see you immediately. And, wow. uh, and we totally reverted. You think after two years of not seeing each other, she was the last person, <laughs> the last thing before COVID big thing that happened was that like a week before the world shut down, she and I went to go see Celine Dion together at Barclays. <laughs> and it is our favorite thing. We love going to concerts together. We have our bucket list. And we were like, we had ma- we got matching sweatshirts. She's like, do you think? And we were like, we definitely got COVID from Celine Dion. But luckily we didn't. <laughs> no one was wearing masks. But like, you know, the funny thing is, is like the person, the, the friend who is like your sister is the person who like, I didn't tidy up my house before she got here. You know what I mean? We just reverted to old behavior mm-hmm. immediately. We flopped down on the sofa and I was like, do we want to talk or do we want to like watch a show? And she's like, let's put on a show first. And so that is, <laughs> she is, uh, she is my, uh, she's my tried and true. She is the one who will pull the plug. <laughs> oh, that is such a nice it's romantic. thought to end on. The, the woman who will kill Alyssa. <laughs> Thank you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, uh, we're going to take a quick break. But when we come back, we have I Feel Petty. I'm Roman Mars, host of 99% Invisible. 
I love the book, The Power Broker, the epic biography of former New York City planner Robert Moses. So I'm breaking it down 100 pages at a time and talking to special guests about why this book matters, like Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. I actually think if it wasn't for Robert Moses, I probably wouldn't have run for Congress. Listen to 99% Invisible's breakdown of The Power Broker every month on the 99% Invisible podcast feed. And welcome back. We have almost reached the end of the show, but not quite. We have to talk about what we're feeling petty about this week. Alyssa, what are you feeling petty about this week? Have you guys watched Inventing Anna? (laughs) Not yet. Okay. I'm not going to spoil anything. (laughs) I'll just say that I have never so aggressively watched something in hopes that it would get better. Then I did this show, which was nine hour long episodes. But let me just say that I forget the actor's name, but the guy who plays Stewie on um, on Succession is a standout star in this. And so is Laverne Cox. Laverne Cox is a she is uh, she is a joy. But um, but yeah, I really I was so excited for it, and I spent an entire weekend like. My dad's like, what are you doing? I was like, I got two episodes left. And he liked it. And I was like, can we not be friends anymore, Pop? Like, this is so <laughs> weird to me. But anyway, it really, I, I watched it in two days and it uh, it did not get more satisfying towards the end. So that's my petty. Oh, oh that's disappointing. And and then you, you that's like nine hours of your life you're not going to get back. Yeah, and, like, and now I got nothing left to look forward to. I was like looking for, well, actually now I'm looking forward to the, the dropout. dropout. So I hope it doesn't suck, Mickey. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's I think it's going to be pretty good. I hear it's I hear it's good. Um, Shaniqua, what are you feeling petty about? So I had moved into this new apartment. I just moved into DC. And Congratulations! Thanks. The last tenants, I don't know. Like when I left my apartment in LA, it was clean. There was nothing left in it. I get here. You come in. It looks like there's nothing in here. I open drawers, there's like blankets. So I got all of that stuff out. And then last week I'm just sitting, there's like a built-in bench for the dining area. And there's this little like hook where you can open and it's storage space. And so I was like, oh, let me just open it. There was a Christmas tree in there. Oh my <laughs> God, like... I thought it was going to be something dead. <laughs> oh no. Yeah. <laughs> no, I wouldn't still be here if something dead was in there. But like, I was just like, why didn't, why didn't you throw out your Christmas tree already? Like, why is it here? Why do I have to deal with your old crap? Like, it's just been exhausting. And I'm just, whoever they are, I don't know who they are, but all the stuff that I've had to find in here and the Christmas tree just kind of sent me over because Christmas was so long ago. Like, get rid of it. (laughs) Why did you store it when you knew you were moving? It just, none of it makes sense to me. So I am just frustrated with whoever was here first or before me and left blankets and, you know. Cut to the person who's there before you being like, you know what? They're going to open this and see a Christmas tree. I know. I'm so so excited. (laughs) I don't even, this is bad. I have, I never spend Christmas where I like live. I always go to like family's house. I never decorate. So I mean, maybe I will this year, but like, I definitely don't want someone else's tree. Alyssa is going to get in her car and Listen, drive down there. You're going to get a box of stuff from me. <laughs> <laughs> she will force you to decorate. She will enforce Christmas cheer. I still she have one tree up it. over here. 
<laughs> it just brings such nice light. It's still dark out. You're like Mrs. Claus IRL. I love Christmas um, lights so much. Yeah, so much. they really they really add to a dark time of the year for sure. Um, okay, so here's what I feel petty about. It's fast and it's it's extremely like basic white lady. Um, but the the fastest place for me to get coffee in my neighborhood is the Starbucks. There's a couple really good like little coffee shops, but you can't just like get in and out of there like it's a machine. It's just a it's a local coffee shop. So if I'm really in a hurry. I have to go to the the Starbucks and uh, I usually put my order in in advance. I run down, just like pick it up and leave. Uh, Just plain old coffee. So when I'm there, I always see a counter that is just full of milk. It is just, it is hot milk. People go to Starbucks because they like hot milk. They don't like coffee. And I really think that that Starbucks and the dairy industry have to be in cahoots because we don't drink like glasses of milk anymore. You know, like this isn't the 90s. This isn't the Got Milk ad campaign where all the celebrities have that gross mustache. I don't think most people drink like people don't like go to the fridge and and pour themselves a glass of cow milk. And but they do when they go to Starbucks, they get a big fucking thing full of milk hot milk. And then they drink it like I go, I got to have my coffee. No, you got to have your hot milk. And it's weird. You shouldn't be drinking that much cow milk. That's that's what I feel. That's what I feel petty about this week. Um, Michaela, do you want to bring us home? Sure. Um, This is a two parter uh, annoyance. Um, I recently had my very first colonoscopy. And congrats. Um, thank you so much. It was just wonderful. Um, I did come out of uh, my twilight uh, talking about succession, which makes <laughs> me realize that my interior life is dull, dead, and like there's nothing exciting. Like I came out and I asked the, the technician if they had been watching uh, succession <laughs> <laughs> and how great like Shiv is. And, yeah, anyway, um, <laughs> Like, that's what I come out of a dream world with. But anyway, um, here's the thing. Look, guys, we're in a health crisis situation right now. There are not enough healthcare workers doing any, you know, to be there to do the the little procedures that we depend on every day. So I want you to know that this, what I'm about to say, is coming out of complete sensitivity for that. Here's my rub. When I was prepping to do this colonoscopy, the office was on the ball about collecting the copay and collecting the fee for the, you know, hospital tower where I was having the procedure done. And by the way, collecting $300 for anesthesia because my insurance doesn't cover it. Yeah, I never understood that. They don't think it's it's necessary. Correct. We don't think anesthesia is necessary when getting an endoscopy colonoscopy, right? It's crazy. Oh, yeah. So I was like, why don't we call SAG Insurance and tell them, go have a colonoscopy without anesthesia, (laughs) and y'all get back to me and tell me how that went. Okay? Oh, my God. So that's my first rub. The second is um, that... The office was like mayhem because half the staff was out with COVID. So I wasn't getting any of the procedure like information. You're not supposed to eat seeds and nuts three days before. You're not supposed to blah, blah, blah. I didn't get any of this. I've never done it before. I don't know how it works. Now, I kept, I, I, I 
kept getting calls being like, we're going to collect your money. Like that ran like a top. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I just wish that they were like either mediocre at both collecting money and giving me the information leading up to it. But don't be so great at collecting the money and then so poor at the actual healthcare. Like be, I would be sensitive if we were kind of dropping the ball in both areas, you know? But right, no, right. but even the, the the new guy who's being trained that day knows how to get my credit card information and exactly what I owe. You know, like drop the ball in the financials and if you're going right. to drop it in the healthcare. Exactly. Oh, well, that's why we need single payer. The people that are on the, yeah. they can be on the ball about something else, the the money collecting people, because I'm sure that on the ball skill is is transferable. I have never had anesthesia covered. Oh my God. I, you know, when when I got my epidural, when I was giving birth, when I was in the worst pain of my life, screaming, uh, and my not dilating, um, I, I asked the anesthesiologist who came into the room, like, are you, will my insurance cover you? And he goes, I don't know. Like he he was like, I don't know, but I, I I would have paid anything for an epidural. Luckily, my insurance did cover it because apparently childbirth counts as something that causes pain. So, um, yeah, it would have been like $3,800 if I hadn't had insurance cover it. Yeah. God. Pretty crazy. To be fair, I think that the skill required to administer anesthesia is very worth a ton of money because it's like, it's such a, such a very difficult thing to do. You're, you're like killing people a little bit, you know, or putting them to sleep so much that they can't feel pain. But yeah, that sucks. They need to cover anesthesia. Agree. Anyway. Anyway. Okay. Well, Michaela, I'm glad that you didn't feel it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Thank you to Shaniqua and Michaela for coming by this week. You guys are great. Thank you to Alyssa for being my ride or die. Thanks to Oriaku Njaku for stopping by and talking to us about her work in ARC Southeast. And thanks to all of you, the listeners. There will be more hysteria for you next week. I am from another planet. This nation Janet. When these girls fan it. Y2K email and scan it. Don't take no for an Hysteria is a Crooked Media production. Caroline Reston is our producer. Our executive producer is me, Aaron Ryan. Alyssa Mastromonaco is our co-producer, and Brian Semmel is our associate producer. Kyle Seglin and Charlotte Landis are the sound engineers, and our editor is Sarah Gibalaska and the folks at Chapter 4. Thank you to our digital team, Nar Melkonian, Nia Kelman, Milo Kim, and Matt DeGroote. Explore the world's hidden wonders on the Atlas Obscura podcast, a village in India where everyone's name is a song, a boiling river in the Amazon, a spacecraft cemetery in the middle of the ocean. Every day, the Atlas Obscura podcast will blow your mind in 15 minutes. You can find it on the SiriusXM app, Pandora, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to follow the show so you never miss an episode.